36 consecutive Wednesdays by Father Alex Frost, Vicar of St. Matthew with Holy Trinity Habergham Eves in Burnley. Chapter 1. In the Beginning. For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. That was the only prayer I remember learning at the infant school in the small village of Worsthorn. Worsthorn, a small village, just a stone's throw away from what would become my beloved Turf Moor, the home of Burnley Football Club, for whom I followed much longer than I have followed Jesus Christ. In the beginning, thoughts of being a Christian, never mind being an Anglican priest, couldn't have been further away from my thoughts. That would come later, much later in fact. Forty years of my life, would have to go under the bridge before bizarrely feeling compelled to be baptised, confirmed and ordained. A journey that encountered numerous setbacks and disappointments before finally being ordained deacon in 2015. Before then, I had to experience a bit of life that took in the suicide of Bob, my childhood best friend, a desire to be a comedy writer and stand-up comedian, getting married and having children, losing my father to dementia and working for the laminated book of dream retailer Argos for 20 years, plus lots and lots besides. So this is my story of that journey from in the beginning to the present day, where I'm the vicar of St. Matthew the Apostle with Holy Trinity, Habergham Eves in Burnley, and where I featured in a BBC news item focusing on COVID-19 poverty in Burnley during the pandemic that was viewed over 12 million times by the British public and where I'm also the host of the Godcast, a social media platform that has had some of the most famous people in the country interviewed by myself on a range of topics, but always with a Christian influence. The guest list includes George Galloway and Geoffrey Archer, Anthea Turner and Eamon Holmes and many more very, very famous faces. So here we go. There is a lot to tell you. But it's my desire that you find something of joy and something of pain in my story. But ultimately, it is my prayer. You find something of faith and hope. Whilst considering myself a proud Lancastrian, if truth be told, it would be revealed that I was actually made and born in Tooting, South London. I was born to dad, John and mom, Pauline, and lived with my other older brother, Rob. We lived very close to the old Tooting and Mitcham Football Club on Sandy Lane, but I have virtually no recollection of those pre-school years, and most of what I know is by word and mouth from my parents. Mum and dad had lived in London for many years. Mum was a mum and dad was an insurance salesman. Pretty dull, I know, but what was unique is John was 50 years old when I was born and 48 years old when Rob came along. So we enjoyed an older dad who was often mistaken for our grandfather, but we didn't care one bit because he was a fantastic father and was in fantastic shape and much fitter and youthful than many of his peers. The other unique thing, was that he was much older than Pauline, our mum, and was nearly 20 years older. But as a child, I never even realised, and I took it all in my stride. 
I was and remain very close to mum. I got infinite amounts of cuddles, occasional clobberings with a wooden spoon for minor indiscretions, but bucket loads of love and some wonderful baking. To this day, my mum, even in her 80s, still makes a delightful bakewell tart on request and continues to make lovely cakes most weeks. Sadly, my old dad died aged 92 in 2013, and he died from dementia, which I will come back to later in the story. Most of my school days, most of my school day memories have nothing to do with education, just simple strategies to avoid education, like regular and elongated journeys to the toilets, frequently pretending that it was for number two rather than just a wee so I could drag out an extra 60 or 90 seconds away from the classroom. And you will quickly gather that I would try anything to avoid state education. One of my more successful strategies was to hide behind the mobile book stand that resembled a gymnasium vaulting bench. I would crouch down and hide until I was noticeably absent by the teacher. I suppose the sad thing was that sometimes I evaded capture for virtually a whole lesson. At the time, it felt like a huge win. But in hindsight, it maybe gave an insight into how the rest of my time in state education might pan out and pass many people by, including myself. I recall crying at pretty much anything and I don't really recall having any really close friends. One of the few highlights of my school days was in the summer months, gazing out of the classroom window to discover the sign which informed the kids if the school field was open or not. If it was green, it indicated lunchtime play could be on the grass and not the boring old playground. That said, I had quite a good relationship with the playground. I spent many a lunchtime rolling my marbles in a drain occasionally being invited to participate with other kids who usually took all my besties with little fairness and many applications of foul play and intimidation. I loved the school field though as a little boy, yards and yards of daisy chains, loads and loads of fake machine gun noises whilst roly-poling down the small hill. It was always a great way to enjoy lunchtime in one's own company. Primary school days for me, were during those halcyon times of being physically chastised by teachers for minor indiscretions and being reminded frequently that I was a remedial that needed to be taken out of the classroom. I now understand it was usually for the benefit of others that I would be educated in the staff room and taught to count on my fingers and use crayons. I was a huge distraction which I only recognised in later years when I sat in school as a vicar and observed the modern-day equivalent of a young Alex Frost. Observing some of the kids' indiscretions was a stark reminder of my own childhood, and I often wonder and worry if those kids are heading for similar struggles as myself. As I progressed through infants, I genuinely don't recall learning very much. I used to spend hours staring at the classroom draperies thinking, will anybody ever wash these curtains? I recall being fascinated by one book in the library about reptiles. I don't know why, to this day, I have little interest in snakes and lizards or books. I remember being far too enthusiastic for a fire alarm test. 
the joy of 15 minutes out of the classroom and loitering on the schoolyard was far more joyous than it should ever have been. One perennial disappointment I do recall was never enjoying the moment of it being my birthday during the school term as I was a July baby. So not only was I one of the youngest children in the class, it meant I would never enjoy the moment of the fake birthday cake ceremony with fake candles. It never registered with me at the time, only that maybe the fake cake only came out for children who were well behaved and excelling in early years academia. School trips generally passed me by as a memory, except for grotesquely warm egg butties and a primary school trip to Knowsley Safari Park when I was spat at by an irritated camel who insisted on disputing ownership of my Woolworths carrier bag with the said sandwich and blue ribbon biscuit. I knew it was mine because my mother had written my name on the bag, but the camel insisted on disputing the matter and spat in my face, such was its annoyance. To this day, I'm not keen on camels or cress for that very reason. I've absolutely no recollection of religion in my formative years. In fact, the closest I got to anything slightly spirit-led was taking the lid off my granny's sherry bottle long before it became as popular as it is now. Christmas time for me was more about Buckaroo and Baby Sham, Val Dunican Christmas shows and writing to Santa for a $6 million man t-shirt and a wind-up evil Knievel motorbike. Santa failed me miserably, leading me to doubt his existence, which was only restored in pre-teenage years when Santa delivered a state-of-the-art Betamax video record via our local branch of Rumbelows. It was a great joy to me and the family, even though the local children stated we should have got VHS. Scouring the memory for anything remotely religious from my formative years led me to the school infant production, where I was given the honour of playing one of the three kings, Casper, I think. I recall nothing of the performance other than the communal changing arrangements and frequently standing in my underpants and vest, waiting to be dressed by the costume director, who doubled up as a dinner lady. Talking of communal changing arrangements, nothing excited my peers more than swimming lessons. The opportunity to jump on a bus and swim for an hour appeared to bring great joy to the majority of children in their final year at my village primary school. Sadly for me, this was very much not the case. In fact, the complete opposite could be said. I never really took to water. I still don't. In fact, the only thing I enjoyed about water as an infant child was sucking the dirty water out of the bath sponge and attempting to hit the taps with projectile accuracy. I think I might have been more successful if my mother's humongous bosoms weren't in the way and I was allowed to bath alone. For the first time, communal changing rooms at swimming lessons at the age of nine revealed to me male genitals and on a grand scale, which I was never ever comfortable with. To this day, I find great discomfort at the thought of being in a gymnasium setting or locker room where I'm faced with a penis that does not belong to me. There is nothing I dislike more than seeing a man drying his own testicles with a spa resort towel that doesn't belong to him 
and sliders that don't make him look anything like the athlete he so desires to be. Fortunately, these days, I don't frequent spas and gymnasiums, preferring to exercise in corporation parks, fully clothed and dressed by regatta and wearing substantial footwear and decent underpants. Changing communally was only the beginning of what would become a weekly nightmare for me. Nobody in my formative years had ever prepared me for the pain and torture of a swimming lesson with a teacher that I swear was the love child of a member of the Third Reich. Non-swimmers like me were distributed to the urine-infested baby pool that its only enduring fe endearing feature was that the water temperature was usually quite nice, if a little bit yellow. However, looking back, being asked to do nothing more than hold the side and splash my legs was a life unaffirming anxiety that I just could not cope with. It was an almost weekly event that reduced me to an absolute quivering wreck that has led to a great fear of water for most of my adult life. I never understood why someone wanted me to wear my pajamas at the swimming baths. I never understood why someone wanted me to risk my life by treading water in the deep end. I never saw the value of submerging myself underwater almost to the point of death just to re retrieve a black rubber brick. There was one thing that did intrigue me at the swimming pool, though, and that was my desire to get a Veruca sock. I did everything I could to get a Veruca, sadly all to no avail. I used to rub my foot in the drain where all the pubic hair gathered. I used to hop through the shallow chlorinated water and exfoliate my feet poolside. I used to dry my feet badly in the hope that I might pick up a Veruca and join the elite group of people blessed with the distinguished white rubber sock. Sadly, the only thing I got out of the swimming lesson experience was an inferiority complex and a mild fungal infection in my groin. One thing I do recall at primary school was that it was okay for teachers to physically punish people for what I considered minor indiscretions. I was hit on a reasonably regular basis to the point that if I was to be punished, I had a favoured teacher who was to smack me. Her name was Mrs Law. I don't recall her features, but I do recall her kindness. She generally was the person who had to sit with me day after day with great patience as I fought her attempts to teach me sums and to write properly. It was only ever going to be a story of disappointment for her as I just couldn't grasp numbers and letters in the way that would satisfy the education system of the 1970s. What does sadden me though, is how I was often physically punished because of my inability to pick things up and excel in education. I recall on one occasion, the headmaster entering the classroom at the request of my teacher. I vaguely recall a geography lesson and we were asked to write something about a very famous river, the Mississippi. I recall being quite excited about this in my mind, but as usual, couldn't articulate myself in written word and got stuck with spelling and grammar 
which got me into frequent experience of reprimand. The headmaster chose to inform the class that one child thought it would be funny to write the river Mississippi as Mrs. Zippy, M-R-S-Z-I-P-P-Y. The class burst out laughing, and in the way that headteachers do, he brought the giggling to a shuddering and immediate halt. He then proceeded to name and shame me, bringing me front and centre for further humiliation. I received three of his finest smacks to my left hand. Each one landed with precision accuracy, and with each blow, he excavated another piece of my self-esteem whilst inflicted great physical pain and reducing me to tears in the progress. Nobody ever consoled me or encouraged me in the classroom except for Mrs. Law. I felt her empathy, but I was too immature to make much sense of it at the time, and I frequently fell into a state of annoyance. Primary school friendships passed me by somewhat. Two friends, who I'll come back to later in the story, stood out. Craig, who was clever and knew he was going to be a GP from about the age of six, and Bobby, a boy who lived down the road, who would go on to be my best friend in my teenage years, before a great sadness occurred and in our time together as friends. My best friend was my dear cat, Simon. He lived until he was 23, and he was so crippled by arthritis, he struggled to walk anywhere in a straight line. I confided everything to Simon, and he spent endless hours at my side. His passing was my first encounter with death, when I found him deceased under our garden bench, fully consumed by rigor mortis and very much not alive. I was a broken boy and I cried for a very long time. And his death was also my first recollection of anything Jesus related, as my parents decided that we could bury him behind the greenhouse in our rural garden. That morning, whilst they were at work, myself and my brother set about digging Simon's grave, only to be interrupted by our neighbour Brenda, who stormed down the garden inquiring what we were doing. We divulged our intention to bury Simon in our garden grounds, and the ceremony would happen later that day. Brenda was not a happy lady, citing vermin, rat infestation, and public health concerns, which would mean there would be no way this funeral service would be going ahead today and close to the foot of a red rose bush. I rang my father at work via the old slow dial telephone and he assured me he would call in on Brenda and smooth things over. We were never privy to that conversation, but he promised me and Rob that everything was sorted and he would bury Simon the following morning. With an air of sadness, I went to bed eager to learn if my father would be true to his word the next morning. As I woke, I opened my curtains and looked out onto the rear of our garden to discover that my dad had indeed been true to his word and buried Simon along with a significant erection at his place of rest. As I looked down the garden before my very eyes was a huge wooden cross, which was about seven or eight feet in height and three foot wide. Standing robustly and upright and facing dear Brenda's patio doors. The pride I had for my father at that moment was only matched when he he arrived soon after the birth of my son Joseph. 
and also during his final moments of his earthly life, as he slowly slipped away with dementia. I had no idea what I would become. I had great designs on being a bus driver and no plans beyond that, really. I was a boy that very much enjoyed my own privacy. I was a huge fan of corgi cars and spent endless hours creating roads with pencils and driving my cars and lorries round and round my bedroom, under my bed and back again, over and over, so contented and without a care in the world. For some strange reason, I was made to join the Cubs, which was, as expected, an unmitigated disaster from beginning to the end. I was placed in an environment that never gave me any joy or satisfaction or feeling of achievement. And in fact, it was very similar to my primary school environment, just bloody difficult. I think my mind worked in a way then, and probably was, why is this necessary? What benefit will this have, or will it ever have to myself? I didn't ever have a desire to be able to tie a ridiculous number of knots in a rope. I didn't ever have a desire to work a compass or a map. I didn't ever have a desire to sleep in a tent with other children and communally wash and get dressed into a ghastly uniform with a thing around my neck. And I most certainly never had the desire to participate in church parade, which at the time was a complete waste of my energy and enthusiasm. I recall I spent most of my term in church in a semi-state of consciousness, drifting in and out of oxygen as the vicar witted on about something completely unimportant or significant in the world that I inhabited as a young child. One of the most, ex most surreal experiences of my ordained life was providing holiday cover at that said village church where I grew up. Never in my wildest dreams could a young Alex Frost one day be leading a service of Holy Communion in the very church that was his ultimate demise from the Cub Scouts because of his refusal to ascend the family parades. The Cubs, like most things as a boy, was something I was sent to rather than asked to be a part of. Rather like my parents' pointless insistence on drives around country lanes in a clapped-out Morris Marina, with nothing more than a square ice cream as a reward and a frequent feeling of petrol-infused nausea. I never wanted to be in the Cubs, and I certainly didn't want to be forced on a Cub Scout trip that, that would lead to a lifelong phobia towards marzipan. After a dreadful night's sleep, most of the children were overly excited about the morning's hike across the lowlands of Pendle Hill in Lancashire, and trekking through rivers and things. I, on the other hand, caught a lonely and isolated figure as I soon established a big hole in my Wellington boots that placed me into a hyperventilating nine-year-old state that thought the world was about to end imminently. Having what felt like every member of staff trying to convince me it wasn't a problem, it clearly was, and I ran away and hid dreadfully behind a tree. It was decided I would remain at camp base and make replica fruit out of marzipan. As the troop of cubs joyfully disappeared, I soon found a place of contentment, making mini apples, mini bananas, mini pineapples, mini oranges, all out of coloured marzipan. And for every one I made, 
I also made one for immediate consumption, which quite quickly turned me as green as one of the replica apples. Not much longer, my young digestive system chose to reject my mid-morning brunch and offered it back to my workstation with grotesque precision and disdain. I cried and cried and was placed on a wall to recover and to await the return of the budding Bear Grylls community. Needless to say, to this very day, I don't eat marzipan. And yet the irony was that whilst the difficulties I endured were palpable, I loved nothing more than being at home. Mum, dad and brother were manageable enough to live with, and nothing gave me more pleasure than my granny stopping over for the weekends with bus rides into town and treats to wimpy for burgers, coke floats and knickerbocker glories. The weekends granny wasn't with us, I was content spending Saturday mornings living in a world of champion the wonder horse and swap shop. And I loved Saturday afternoons watching overweight superstars, Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks put the fear of God into excitable children and raging grandparents. Saturday nights were treat nights in our house, which meant egg sandwiches and sardines on toast being brought to the lounge on a hostess trolley with mother's treacle tart and a sliced up Batewell. I loved It's a Knockout and adored Larry Grayson's era as host of the Generation Game. And I think it's quite possible that Isla Sinclair was my very first crush as a young lad. Sundays were usually those dreaded car trips to look at views and inhale tobacco, but I did enjoy the occasional trips to visit my Uncle Con and Auntie Peggy, who lived on Lower Manor Lane in Burnley, ironically a place I would live for many years in later life with my beautiful wife Sarah. Uncle Con, or to give him his full name, Uncle Constantine Vitalis, was brother to my dear Granny Irene. He was a staunch communist with a beautiful, strong Welsh accent. Family on my mother's side descended from South Wales, but her Greek grandfather Mario was from Constantinople, now more commonly known as Istanbul. He was a merchant seaman who arrived in Newport before sadly dying in a mental asylum and enduring a difficult end to his life. I was really rather quite fond of my Uncle Con. He had endless arguments about politics with my conservative voting father, but he was always very respectful and kind. Back home, I was also quite fond of Marjorie and Bert, our neighbours who lived over the fence. I was often in receipt of Bert's unwanted underpants, but more significantly, I was also in receipt of their unwanted collection of vinyl records, which was a joy to behold for a young boy who had been recently given a Fidelity record player one Christmas off his granny, Irene. The records were old and used, but they allowed me to enter an eclectic world of Ingelbert Humperdinck, Cliff Richard, Elvis Presley and Ackerbilt. This was the point that I fell in love with music, and there were two songs in particular. Firstly, By the Light of the Silvery Moon by Jackie Wilson, and then It's Late by Ricky Nelson, who I played endlessly on my record player over and over. And to this day, the songs are still very dear to my heart. Summer holidays seemed long and glorious. We usually went down south for a week. On my only trip abroad as a child, I remember being mistaken for a girl in a jeweler's in the French port of Dieppe, probably because I was wearing a flamboyant yellow cardigan knitted by my mother. 
I recall being locked in the toilet of Otley 8, which was the name of our chalet on the reasonably priced Hailing Island, and I had to be rescued by site maintenance. I recall trying to refrain from emptying my bowels for seven days on a caravan site in Pagham, as our caravan didn't have a toilet. I got to the Wednesday before the excruciating pain forced me to use the rather grim campsite facilities. But oh, the relief. I recall being a fan of Jim Davison and the brilliant female impressionist Janet Brown after enjoying front row seats at some theatre in Bournemouth. I recall trips to family friends, the adorable Terry and Vanda. They evoked memories of greyhound racing and trips to Brighton and wonderful family times together. The family included friends Leslie and Marianne, and I enjoyed many an hour with my brother with free and unmitigated access to the Crystal Palace Athletic Stadium. On one occasion, we attempted to put up every seat in the stadium, and memory fails me if we achieved it or not. Leslie was responsible for the care of the stadium, and it was always fun being in his company. My dad would talk endlessly about athletics, as he was a very com accomplished sprinter, frequently representing the RAF and genuinely being one of the best sprinters in the country. For some strange reason, he turned down the opportunity to be a reserve for the 1948 Olympic Games and chose to carry on his work and endeavours instead. As the primary school years were winding down, the prospect of high school was winding me up. It filled me with complete and utter fear. Why, oh why, did I need to go to school? I wasn't designed for education at such a young age. I had Panini football albums to keep me busy and occupy my time. However, as it does, time passes, and I can't recall any single emotion about leaving primary school. I just have no memory of leaving. No signed shirt or leavers attire. I just left and spent the next six weeks dreading what was to come next. And oh, it wasn't good. It really wasn't good.